Hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Bradley, welcoming you back to Ethically Sourced, a podcast dedicated to improving health equity and providing culturally-based care. Before we get started, I do have some feedback or at least a consultation from a listener. So recently they write at their hospital system, they had a procedure where there were two surgical specialties operating in the same operating room as they proceeded to induce anesthesia during the timeout, they realized that a consent form had been signed by one surgical service, but a second consent form did not have a signature. This is for the second surgical service. And this person was asking what they should do in that circumstance. What they actually did was uh, a member of the operating room uh, nursing staff actually went out to the patient's family member or a medical power of attorney to obtain consent. So reviewing some of the data from the case and the information that was provided, it sounds like both surgical services did provide an informed consent to that patient. And of course, a true informed consent is a discussion. It's not necessarily a consent form or a piece of paper or a signature. It is the fact that a discussion was had where the risk and benefits and alternatives of a certain medical procedure or course of action was discussed with the patient and the patient provided their consent or did not provide consent. So talking with this person, it seems like that did take place for both surgical services. However, one of the surgical services did not get a physical signature on their consent form. So ultimately, this boils down to an error in paperwork or protocol for for that hospital system, but it did not truly constitute a breach in medical ethics or a lapse in obtaining true informed consent. Moving forward, what I would recommend personally, one, review the policies and procedures at your place of work if a similar situation should occur. There are uh, checklists and checkpoints put in place to ensure that patients don't proceed to the operating room without um, you know, obtaining signatures and obtaining true informed consent. But especially in the setting of two surgical subspecialties, it's easy to overlook because once you have one consent, then you're usually ready to proceed to the operating room. But first, I would recommend reviewing the policies and procedures of your institution, your place of work, and then second, if this were to occur where a patient has not physically signed a consent form, as long as there was an appropriate informed consent conversation that took place, as they proceed with this surgery for the indicated procedures, then I would recommend an attending physician document this in the medical record. And they should probably have a co-signature from an additional attending physician Documenting that informed consent took place, we discussed these risks, we discussed these benefits of the indicated procedure, and the patient did provide consent. However, we did not obtain a physical signature for the medical legal purposes or for the institutional protocols. So thank you so much for reaching out. Again, if you have questions about ethical situations or ethical scenarios, reach out to me online, stephenbradleymd.com. You can select the link to contact me and there is a space to 
submit an ethical consultation or a consultation about health equity. Happy to, to help out in any way I can. The topic of this week's episode is how, when, and why patients can refuse care from surgical trainees or other members of the healthcare staff. This is something that we've heard of throughout the years, right? When medical residents start residency, they're interns in their first year out, and it's not uncommon or not unheard of for patients to say, well, I don't want care from an intern or from a resident or from a medical student. And how we navigate these scenarios speaks volumes and it reinforces, for better or for worse, different principles of medical ethics and how these physicians in training will continue to interact with their patients and how these patients will continue to maintain trust or lose trust in the medical care system. When it comes down to who patients allow to provide care for them, there's a couple different ways to look at these scenarios and these situations. The first way I like to look at it is from the perspective of a patient. So ultimately, patients have autonomy. They have the um, ability to say who they do and do not want providing care to them. They can say, I, I do want Dr. X to touch me. I don't want Dr. Y. At the end of the day, patients are autonomous and they are fully in control of their own person and body. A couple of caveats to this are emergency care. Obviously, if the patient's incapacitated, does not have capacity or competence to make medical decisions, a little hard pressed to um, weigh into you know, who they do or don't want taking care of them. Usually under the reasonable patient standard, we provide the appropriate care in emergency settings. However, not to dodge the bullet, in elective cases, this presents not infrequently. As an anesthesiologist, I've seen this before on labor and delivery, where students, uh, you know, resident physicians are placing neuraxial, so spinals or epidurals for patients that are in labor or about to have cesarean delivery. A uh, very personal story I have, my very last day of residency, I was doing a 24-hour call, the last 24-hour call of residency as well. And early in the morning, it's about 2 or 3 a.m., we're doing a cesarean delivery. In the OR, we get there, I'm about to do the spinal. I think the patient was a physician assistant and they taught at one of the local programs. So as I'm putting gloves on to do the spinal, uh, the OR nurse comes up and kind of whispers, like loudly whispers, hey, this patient doesn't want any students um, or residents involved in placing the spinal. Now, my attending, he was fully supportive. He was kind of like, really, like, he's going to be an attending in literally four hours. Um, and he supported me, kind of thought the whole thing was ridiculous. He'd worked with me for quite a while. He knew I was more than capable of placing this spinal. And it, honestly, it felt good to know that he supported my role in the operating room and he supported my knowledge, skills, and abilities. Um, when it came to my opinions, I said, well, you know what? I've done plenty of these procedures with this patient. Doesn't 
feel comfortable with me providing care, then I don't want to provide care anyways. And I was happy, I was happy to sit back and allow my attending to place his spinal and we proceeded. And then a couple hours later, I was still in presidency. So that was my own personal experience, but you know, it, it provides the, the setting because I see this frequently in labor delivery um, and other procedures where patients do request an attending only procedure. So number one, we need to respect the autonomy of patients. Uh, this is also an educational opportunity to, to teach patients that, hey, this is a teaching hospital and these residents are integral members of the team. We depend upon them to a certain extent to be able to function efficiently and safely. And this is how they interact with you. They are under my supervision and displaying that level of supervision. But ultimately, patients do have the right to refuse care from anybody. The second aspect to look at is from that of the resident perspective, the medical student perspective, or the trainee. So as students, you study hard, you're ready to deliver care to the best of your ability under the supervision of your attending physician. And it can be very demoralizing when you interact with patients that immediately dismiss you because you are just a trainee. For those students, you know, number one, you need to recognize and realize that patients are autonomous. Don't take it personally. People have had various experiences in the healthcare system, and those experiences are guiding the way, you know, their survival mechanisms really into how they're continuing to interact with members of the healthcare team. So don't take it personally. Some patients are more diplomatic than others. Some people are downright rude about it. Uh, but ultimately, remember that your attending is in charge of their care. So if you encounter a patient that refuses your care, I would recommend immediately escalating that to your attending, you know, describe the situation. I think as adults, we can have these open conversations like, hey, Dr. So-and-so, this patient said they did not want me to do the history and physical exam because I'm a student. At that point, it is up to your attending to, to navigate this scenario from there. Your attending may support you, they may not, they may you know, obviously defer to the institutional policies and practices, which I encourage everyone to be familiar with. Some hospitals say we are 100% uh, in support of our residents, and this is a teaching hospital. Other hospitals have a more lenient policy where, you know, it's whatever a patient wants, the patient will ultimately get. So knowing the background, the history of where you work is key, especially for residents in progress. For residents, I would also initially try to elicit a reason why the patient does not want your care. In a non-hostile way, if, if possible, you know, ask, what are you concerned about? That's usually a good follow-up question. Um, you know, if I may ask, you know, what are your concerns? And that gives you a little bit more to talk about with your attending, because there are some scenarios where it's not okay. If it is a reasonable concern, maybe they've had a bad experience before or had complications in the past, those are reasonable. Some unreasonable concerns are especially associated with 
bias and racism. So if they don't want a resident that is black, that is a woman, that is a male, there is some reason and logic that can be applied depending on the culture of the patient and the culture of the institution. As physicians and providers, we don't want to enforce bias, racism, or discrimination in healthcare. And we could potentially reinforce this in patients if we abide by their wishes, especially in the setting of discrimination or bias. So I would encourage residents to, one, take it with a grain of salt. If you want to elicit more details, go ahead, but definitely at the earliest convenience, escalate this to your attending. It's important when considering a resident perspective that they do feel supported. Residents are in a tough place. You know, they could be feeling discriminated against. They could be feeling a number of different emotions. And as attendings, it's our job to be upfront, honest, with our trainees when navigating these situations. If the patient doesn't want a resident to place the spinal, then tell your resident that, hey, sorry, this patient doesn't feel comfortable with you placing the spinal. I've worked with you. I know you're skilled enough to place this. However, the department policy is we will accommodate reasonable patient requests. How much would you like to be involved in this patient's care? That's a very reasonable conversation to have with a resident in this situation. But I think it's very important that we treat residents and medical students like adults, which they are, and have these open, candid discussions when these situations occur. The third way you need to look at things is from the perspective of the attending, the person who is ultimately responsible, the person who's signing their name on the chart. So an attending has a duty to his patients to provide the highest level of care they're able to provide to respect that patient's autonomy, to um, not unduly influence that patient, but to provide a level of education and help that patient understand the process and the way the healthcare system works. So as an attending, if a patient were to refuse care from a resident or medical student, have that conversation with the patient. What are your concerns? After listening to their concerns, you know, explain that as the attending of record, you're familiar with this patient or with this resident or trainee's skills, talents, knowledge, and abilities, and that they are working directly under you, under your supervision, and that you accept full responsibility. And if you didn't think it was safe, you would not proceed and you would not work with that resident. Assuming all this to be true, of course. And then, you know, ask the patient, hey, well, do you feel comfortable doing a procedure with the resident or not? At some hospitals, especially in the surgical setting, explain that I need this resident to provide the best care possible in the operating room. I need an assistant, and this is how that resident will be performing. And try your best to solicit consent from the patient. You're not trying to coerce the patient, but you do want them to understand and ideally consent to that level of care. I was in a situation not too long ago where I, I, was, I was in this exact situation where a patient refused care. I was doing nerve blocks and it's a little different. So if I was a surgeon and I just had to explain to the patient that 
the resident would be assisting me operating and, and they would be asleep and they'd be under my constant supervision. The patient could consent and then the patient would be asleep during the procedure and things would proceed and I would be able to supervise my resident appropriately. However, this day I was doing regional anesthesia, I was doing nerve blocks, and the procedure that the patient did not want the resident to perform was an, an interscaling nerve block, which essentially involves jabbing a needle into the patient's neck while they're awake. I discussed one-on-one with the patient, their concerns, they had reasonable concerns about the procedure. I discussed my relationship with the resident, the resident's skill level that I trust the resident, but obviously expressed that I ultimately would not want to make the patient feel uncomfortable in this healthcare encounter. And then I honestly stepped away. I thought about what I would do in this situation before. I've engaged in some chit chats on Twitter, but right then and there, it was, you know, hit me square between the eyes. So what I ultimately did was find uh, a member of the, one of my partners that's engaged in resident education and just bounced a couple of ideas off of this individual. What are our department policies? What have we done in the past? What should we do here? So even as the medical ethicist that I am, I was at an impasse and I actually had to sit back and think about how can I proceed with this interaction in a way that is fair to the patient and that is fair to the resident. Since then, I've actually looked into other resources to find out what the precedent is. According to the American Medical Association Code of Ethics, when it involves resident and fellow physicians involvement in patient care, it's the Code of Medical Ethics Opinion 9.2.2, and it states that residents and fellows have dual roles as trainees and caregivers. Residents and fellows share responsibility with physicians involved in their training to facilitate educational and patient care goals. Residents and fellows are physicians, first and foremost, and should always regard the interests of patients as paramount. When they are involved in patient care, residents and fellows should, number one, interact honestly with patients, including clearly identifying themselves as members of a team that is supervised by the attending physician and clarifying the role they will play in patient care. They should notify the attending physician if a patient refuses care from a resident or a fellow. Second, they should participate fully in established mechanisms in their training programs and hospital systems for reporting and analyzing errors. They should cooperate with attending physicians in communicating errors to patients. This is all part of the educational process. Physicians involved in training residents and fellows should take steps to ensure that training programs are structured to be conducive to the learning process as well as to promote the patient's welfare and dignity, right? So patient first, that's why we're all here. And then they should address a patient's refusal of care from a resident or fellow. If after discussion, a patient does not want to participate in training, the physician may exclude residents or fellows from the patient's care. If appropriate, the physician may transfer the patient's care to another physician or non-teaching service or another healthcare facility. In my distinct scenario, that is ultimately what I decided to do because I supported my resident and I knew that my resident was capable of performing appropriately. I 100% supported my resident, but I also supported my patient's autonomy and, you know, 
ethically, the right thing to do was to recuse myself from the patient's care. I was able to turn over the care to one of my partners. I said, uh, this other person will be providing your care today. They'll be doing your nerve block. And that was the end of the, the conversation. I then went back and closed a loop with the resident that I was working with to hear their concerns and to see if I handled the situation in the appropriate manner, if they felt supported and got some feedback. When it comes to patients that are concerned about receiving care from residents, fellows, and other training members of the healthcare workforce, it's important that we're above board, that we're honest, that we have these discussions head on, realize that patients are autonomous, realize that patients are also in a very vulnerable state when they're presenting for these procedures. They may feel helpless, they may feel that by expressing their concerns, they will be judged, discriminated against, and receive worse care. So it takes a lot for them to express these concerns to the trainee or the physician involved. So take that into consideration uh, when faced with these scenarios. Have straightforward, honest conversations with all parties involved and ultimately attempt to accommodate reasonable requests from patients and to have these open and honest discussions with residents and trainees. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ethically Sourced. Hopefully you walk away with something that you can find useful and incorporate into your practice to help you provide more equitable, culturally competent care. I hope that by generating these discussions on clinical medical ethics, that I will be able to have a positive impact on the lives of the patients that we take care of. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to check out my website, stephenbradleymd.com, where you can request a consultation in either health equity or clinical medical ethics. Tune in Monday to another episode of the Black Doctors podcast, where we're providing inspiration and information for the next generation of black and brown healthcare workers.